Have your Bibles turn First Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians fifteen. We uh, since we're doing the resurrection in the morning, uh, usually we, we we pick up on something in the evening. Um, and uh, related to that, First uh, Corinthians fifteen is one of one of the more important chapters uh, of the New Testament, in that it lays out for us the entire doctrine of the resurrection. Um, so. Uh, which actually makes the job of finding good text for our Sunday morning series because all, we could just camp out here. So this allows us to talk about the resurrection from a topical perspective and an exegetical uh, perspective. Uh, we want to look at verses 12 to 19. So uh, if you'll stand with me, we'll read um, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Apostle Paul writes of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as ransom from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen, raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, every time we gather, we ask for the same thing. Your spirit would move. We would be transformed. Um, Lord, we ask that you would do that. Lord, this uh, text is pretty straightforward when you look at the argument, but the application is so essential, often we overlook it. So Lord, give us a right understanding and application of this text. May I decrease so you can increase. In your son we pray. Amen. See you. As a homeschool dad, because we, we part-time homeschool, part-time do Christian Academy, uh, I have taught several classes over at our homeschool co-op. And these classes uh, have ranged from uh, uh, geography to an upcoming semester. I'm doing uh, advanced New Testament and debate. So I've taught a little bit of everything. One class I've actually taught twice is logic. Now, to be fair, what, what we've really talked about are logical fallacies. Uh, and I'm not going to bore you with logical fallacies. I, I want to actually bore you with actual logic. Uh, there is a, a thing called conditional statements. And usually they are written in if-then sentences. If A, then B. For example, if all you eat is sugar and carbs, you will gain weight. If A, then B. If all you do is root for Kentucky basketball, you're bound to be disappointed come March, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. If you watch Kentucky football, right, you're, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you, you, you could do that, right? If A, then B. In many ways, that, that is all that Paul is doing here in these verses. Uh, when you read through it, you're, you're sort of lost. It sounds like Paul keeps repeating himself. In one sense, that is exactly what he's doing. Because his argument is, is pretty straightforward. If A, then B. But also what you have, what Paul does is, if B, then A. Both are connected to each other. And if that works, then it also works, to use a conditional statement, that, that if A is not true, B is not true. And if B is not true, A is not true. If you are losing weight... It's probably because you're not eating just sugar and carbs. If you're happy come March, it's probably because you're not a University of Louisville fan, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the logic of it. 
It's a conditional statement. And so with that said, what, what we get is the thesis in verse 12. This is where, that, this, this, uh, where it starts in verse 12, where we really start, start to see this. So it, it says there, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, remember what, what we saw um, uh, previously. His argument was that the resurrection of Jesus was a real event in history. That was his first argument in the first 11 verses. Then he also argued that the resurrection lied at the center of our faith. So, so if we just look at the 11 chapters or 11 verses, he, he's laid that out. Christ was risen historically and it is the foundation of, of our faith. And having laid that foundation on the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus, he's prepared to apply the doctrine to us uh, and apply it to, to his readers. Any study of the, of the book of Corinthians will highlight the point that this is a book written among divided believers. Uh, they were divided over ethical issues. After all, they were uh, suing each other, um, which is incredible, actually, to think about. I mean, anymore, people leave a church if someone looked at you the wrong way, let alone file a lawsuit. Uh, but I don't recommend filing lawsuits. Uh, they were divided over moral issues particularly when it came to sexual sin within the church. A polity, that is, uh, uh, some had, uh, this pastor was their favorite pastor, that preacher was their favorite preacher, this leader was their favorite leader, uh, and they were fighting over those sort of things. They were fighting over issues within worship. Um, they were fighting over, like, spiritual gifts. Um, I can do this, and I can do that, and they do this, I'm better than them, that sort of stuff. Uh, and they are divided over theological issues, which is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Uh, they, are, uh, they have uh, a misinformed view of the resurrection, and so Paul is having to, to deal with this. And it appears as if there were significant debate regarding the resurrection among the believers. Now, we should state here that um, debates over the resurrection in the Bible is not new. Um, in fact, when you look at the New Testament, one of the main issues that separated Sadducees and Pharisees was this issue of the resurrection. The Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees believed what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And as such, Sadducees rejected uh, a lot of things. Let me give you a few verses where this comes up in the New Testament. Matthew 22, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, remember, this is, this is where they tried to trick Jesus, say a woman had a husband, he died. She married his brother, he died. And she did that seven times. No one thought to uh, do an investigation. And then they say, in the resurrection, whose husband is, whose wife is she going to be, right? And, and the premise is, this is one of our arguments against the resurrection. It's ridiculous, right? Well, you see there that Sadducees didn't believe in it, whereas Pharisees did. Or consider the story of the Apostle Paul in Acts 23. When Paul perceived that one part of those who were against him were Sadducees and another part were Pharisees, he cried out, brother, I am a Pharisee. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial. And Luke adds this, which means he probably has a predominantly Gentile audience. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels or spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So some would, would uh, I think this is unhelpful, but some see Sadducees as more liberal, Pharisees as more conservative. I don't think it's a helpful dichotomy, but uh, maybe uh, at least a, a starting point for, for some of us. The point is to say that this is a debate uh, that particularly in the time of Paul, there were some who read their Bibles and, and still denied it. But I think if we read the Old Testaments, um, let alone the New Testament, it's very clear the New Testament, but I think even if we read the Old Testament, it's evident 
there is a resurrection of the dead. Can I give you just a few verses, uh, just, just to nerd out a little bit? When Jesus is asked by the Sadducees about the wife who had the seven husbands, he quotes this verse. And what he, because remember, Sadducees only believe the first five books of the Bible. And the reason he quotes this is it's from Exodus. It also is because it's the foundation of the resurrection. Notice Jesus says, it does not say, I was the father, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. Rather, he says, I am right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Jesus' point. Implied in that statement is the resurrection. Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. But we can look at other passages of the Old Testament. Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and to everlasting contempt. I mean, that good fire and brimstone preacher will love that verse, won't they? Very clear what the implications are. Or Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, right? So, so, so it isn't just that disembodied spirit, they're going to have vocal cords, right? They're going to sing. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. It's poetic language there to describe a resurrection. We, we can look also at Psalm 49. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. That's probably a reference to the grave or the afterlife. He will receive me. One more, Job 19. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This sounds contradictory, doesn't it? His premise is, even as my body decays and returns to the dust, yet I will be raised bodily in the flesh and see God. I think it's evident within the Old Testament you, you can see this. But what Paul does here is, is he offers us real, um, real simplicity when this. So, so if we go back to the, to the uh, conditional statement, if-then, the if is the fact, the then is the application. Here it is. If Christ is risen from the dead, then there is a resurrection of the dead. That's his argument. That's his thesis. Now, he puts it in a negative context, you know, and he does that throughout this, this section because he's responding to those who are critical of it. So he'll say, now, um, uh, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But his point is, if Christ is risen, he's established that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Then the application then, and the implication is, we too shall be risen from the dead. There's nothing complicated about this logic. Um, but the opposite is true. If there is the resurrection of the dead, then Christ is the first to be raised from the dead. Right? That is, so, so if A, then B, likewise B, therefore A. Now, what follows in the rest of this passage, if you understand that thesis, uh, there are the, uh, what we could call the consequences of that truth. And that is like, why should we even care about this? I mean, it's one thing to, 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 to understand his argument, but, but why is it important? Why is Paul writing a pastoral letter to a, to a real church like we are a real church? Why is it so important to, to explain this and, and to use the logic that he does? I think I have four, maybe. I think it's five, actually. I think it's five. Um, so what I want to do is, is his language leans towards the negative, right? I want to put it in the positive so it's just more clear for us. Here are five benefits, consequences of Christ and our resurrection. The first is the resurrection means we have a redeemer. This is verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been risen. 
Every world religion, I believe, misdiagnoses the human condition. What ails us is not just folly and wickedness. If, it, if ignorance is our lots, wisdom will be our salvation. If foolishness is our lot, um, then law might help us out. If injustice is our main problem, then political theory will set us straight. You really think about it. If our problem is we are wicked, foolish, and unjust, then we could fix that pretty quickly, right? Our car just broke down before, before we came here. It's over at TFCA right now. And, and I know that the problem is pretty straightforward. Maybe expensive problem, hopefully not, but it's a pretty straightforward problem. A mechanic can look at that and fix it. And often we simplify the human condition like that. All right, so there's a problem with humanity. I know what we need is more education. And what we need or uh, what we need is just legislation. We can just regulate human behavior so that we all live happily ever after. Um, this, this is the way we often think, but, but it doesn't work that way. Um, we need something else. The real problem with humanity is that we are spiritually dead, which means we need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need someone that has conquered death. The Bible uses countless metaphors for this simple truth. We are blind, deaf, demonized, lost, dead. Mankind does not simply need to be reformed. Mankind needs to be revived. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, he offers us nothing more than Moses, Muhammad, Mormonism, or Marx. What good, then, is a dead Savior? If death has the final say, then there is no Savior, which is why I think it's significant. You can travel the world and you can visit the graves of many religious and philosophical political leaders. Muhammad can be found in the Green Dome in Saudi Arabia. Joseph Smith is buried in the Smith Family Cemetery in Carthage, Illinois. But in Jerusalem, there is still an empty tomb. Paul's point here is that if there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. You see, if A is true and B is true, then B, if it is true, then A is true. So his point is, is that if you take out the resurrection, you are taking out the resurrection of Christ. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, there is no redemption for the sinner. But if Christ has been risen from the dead, then the implication of that is Christ is the one who redeems us. And redemption isn't found in law or wisdom or, anything, or ritual. It is found, rather, in he who conquered the grave. If we are spiritually dead, redemption comes in he who is physically risen from the dead. The second benefit of this is um, the resurrection means our faith is actually true. Um, in 1944, Amer during World War II, when the Americans were fighting the Japanese, the Americans captured a Japanese island at the Battle of Guam. And as a result of their defeat, ten Japanese soldiers went into hiding. Seven eventually moved away, leaving behind three Japanese soldiers who stayed in hiding with no communication access to generals or anything like that. They were just on their own. They would remain there for years, even beyond the end of the war. The last survivor was found in 1972. After almost 30 years after the war ended with Japan, this gentleman found hiding in the caves on that island 
for nearly 30 years believing the war was still going on. The reason he thought that was when he had no communication with, with you know, military, but it was near a, a hub of commercial airlines. And so every day he looked up and he saw plane after plane after plane after plane, and he assumed by looking at that that Japan and America were still at war. And he had to stay in hiding. Now, can you imagine spending 30 years of your life believing something that wasn't true? That would be a terrible way to live your life. So too can you imagine dedicating your life to the, the idea, the thesis that Christ has risen from the dead only to discover it is not true. Which is why when our study of 1 Corinthians began several weeks ago, we began with that premise, did Christ really raise from the dead? Now, pause there and consider just how unlikely the birth of Christianity is. A group of young Jewish boys, the probably teenagers, they follow an eccentric teacher who suffered the worst punishment under Roman tyranny, crucifixion, which means no one is going to believe that this guy is anyone worth following. To the Romans, Jesus is viewed as an insurrectionist who got what he deserved, a domestic terrorist, if you prefer. To the Jews, Jesus was a blasphemer who fell under the curse of God. And then walk these uh, uh, semi-illiterate rednecks from Nazareth who couldn't make it in the fishing business so thought they would do the itinerant preaching business. And somehow, through them, they turned the world upside down. You really think about how unlikely that is. And we talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the evidence of the resurrection. Think about how likely it is that they would preach that message to begin with. Read Acts. You can't really see it as well in the English, but certainly in the Greek. Um, the apostles go out of their way to emphasize just how unlikely the resurrection is, uh, the, the crucifixion resurrection. They'll say things like, Jesus died on a tree, which is inciting Deuteronomy, which says anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed of God. They go out of their way to demonstrate this is an unlikely story. Then they'll say, by the way, you killed him. You killed the Messiah, both Jew and Gentile. You did it. You were in leagues with the Romans to execute him. Unlikely story. Yet it spread among ethnic Jews and even to the Romans. They affirmed it, they preached it, and they planted churches based on all of it. And all one need to do to undermine that basic message is to produce the body of Jesus. That's all you have to do. Yet no body was ever produced. Our faith hinges on the historic resurrection. If Christ is not risen, our faith is futile. But the opposite is equally true. If Christ is risen, then we are standing on the firm footing that not just that Jesus was raised, but that the gospel saves. That is Paul's point there in 14 to 16. Notice how he keeps speaking of vanity. If Christ has not been risen, so he's telling it from a negative perspective, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We're even found to be mis misrepresenting God. So, so now, now we're, it's not just that we are, we, we are fools, we are deceivers, we're blasphemers. And so he'll, he'll come down that, that um, um, verse 16, if, if, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ. So you see it, that if A is true, Christ hasn't been risen, then our faith is in vain. The opposite is true. If we will not be raised, our faith 
isn't true. Right? If A is true and B is true, that means that B is true, then A is true. Then, 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 then if your faith is rooted in the resurrection of Christ, it's also rooted in the hope of our own resurrection. And that's the encouragement part. Whenever I struggle with doubt, I always ask myself two questions. Is God real and is, did Jesus conquer the grave? Everything else sort of just falls in line. I don't have to be able to explain every Bible verse or every philosophical inquiry. If I can say with certainty and reasonable certainty, dude, he walked out of the grave. What are you going to do with that? You're just going to ignore that? Like to me, that solves the problem of evil. That solves the problem of suffering. That solves the origins of the universe. That solves everything. Thirdly, um, the resurrection means the assurance of our salvation. There in verse 17. If Christ has not been risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Mary, if, if, if the main problem with humanity is spiritual death and eternal separation due to sin, then the resurrection of Christ assures us that our faith saves us. You understand that in every religion apart from Christianity, there is no assurance. Because ritual and law are rooted in the hope you're good enough. So I think I've mentioned this before. If you go to Africa, to go out to the desert, Sahara Desert, you will find bright pink mosques everywhere. No one uses them. No one goes to them. No one worships there. Nothing. The reason they're there is because um, men went out and built a mosque so that it is as close as they can get to assurance of salvation when they die. That's it. No one goes to it. It's just, it's just ritual. It's duty. It's law. Um, that's not what Christianity is based off of. Christianity, the reason we have assurance, is not because we have followed the rules and done the rituals. We, 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 we can be assured of our salvation as we can be as assured of Christ's resurrection. If Christ is risen, sin has been conquered. It's been crucified. Therefore, we, we cannot fall out of our salvation. We cannot fall into damnation. If we are hidden in Christ. I, I think it's MacArthur who says that if you can lose your salvation, you will lose your salvation. I think that's pretty true. But I think the reality is that if Christ is risen from the dead, you have nothing to fear. If we should not fear death, why should we fear sin? It's not a license to sin. It is a license to hope in the resurrection of Christ with our assurance. That's Paul's point here in, in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We just talked about that. You're still in your sins. That's the negative side. The positive side, if Christ has been risen from the dead, you are not in your sins, period, by faith. For your faith is not in vain. That is good news. Well, fourthly, the resurrection means eternal life. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I may make this note later on in a few weeks, so forgive me if I repeat myself. Um, when I do uh, burials of a believer, I almost always read the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll come to that in, in a number of weeks. But one of the things I like to highlight, and I actually have in my Bible, this is what I use at, at, at funerals, is I highlight that Paul loves the word asleep in 1 Corinthians 15. That would be good homework for you. Go home tonight, read through 1 Corinthians 15, and highlight how many times he uses the word asleep. It's a metaphor for dead. But I don't know about you, but when I go to sleep at night, I have every intention of waking up the next morning. Some mornings I get up earlier than I want to. Some mornings I don't have to get up as early as I want to, but I didn't sleep throughout the night, so it feels like I got up earlier than I wanted to, right? 
Have you ever noticed that when you have to get up early, you could have slept through the slept all day? When you get to get a little extra sleep, you're up early when you're not even trying. Isn't that just evidence that we live in a fallen world and come Lord Jesus quickly? There are no alarm clocks in heaven, I'm convinced, right? What were we talking about? Yeah, Paul's metaphor here. Um, so asleep implies waking up. And that is the metaphor he uses for the resurrection. He say that some of us will asleep, will fall asleep, that is we'll die. But the metaphor implies we will be raised, we will wake up. And that's, 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 that's what he does here. It's the first time he uses this. Those also who have already fallen asleep, talking about those who have already died. Because some of the early Christians were afraid, you get this for Thessalonians, they're they afraid that if you die before the resurrection of Jesus, what hope do you have? And Paul's point is, I'll tell you what hope you have, the resurrection. The resurrection is your hope. And this means that, that if Christ is risen from the dead, we have the assurance of eternal life. Again, notice the logic. If A, then B. If Christ is risen, we will be raised. Because we will be raised, we know Christ has been risen. And what are we being raised to? We're being raised to eternal life. Now, this is really, really practical. The thought of eternal separation is too much for many of us to, to contemplate. The thought of temporary uh, separation is too much to handle, isn't it? I've, I've, look, I've, I've done all the sort of funerals that you can do. I've done the suicides, I've done the drug overdoses, I've done the car wrecks, I've done the elderly, I've done the young, I've done the infants, I've done the teenagers, I've done the middle age, I've done them all. And in every single one of them, the sting of death, one of the stings of death is, is what feels like forever separation. I've, I've, I've done the, the, the car wrecks where, 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 where the parents can't, they, they won't come out. You know, the door is locked, they're, 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 they're in bed, they, 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 they will not come out. That they, they are almost themselves sinking into Sheol. They, 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 are, they are at the, such a low point of despair. They, they, and, and many of those, the family have to come around it to, to, to keep them from harming themselves. I mean, it's, it's a very low point. That the idea of separation is, is, is often, I've done the funerals where you walk in and you know that there is nothing but lostness here. What are you going to say? You know, well, be happy for the years you had with the person you love so much. Not comfort. It's not comfort. Pictures help, but they don't. Uh, they don't comfort ultimately. You know, and um, sharing memories help, but it's not ultimate comfort. Um, Paul argues that if Christ is not risen, there is no guarantee of eternal life. At the same time, if Christ has been risen. We know that there is a resurrection on a new heavens and a new earth by which there will be a union of believers. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about heaven. Um, the Bible doesn't show us where we, we die and we wake up and we see Grandpa again. What it shows us is the reunion of saints, which is more glorious than, you know, than, than, than what, what we may limit it, right? Yes, I want to see all my grandparents. I got to know three of them, limited. I got to know three of them. One of them I never met died when my father was, was, was a boy. I'd love to meet. I've heard all the stories. I'd love to meet her. I'd love to meet all of them. More than that, I want to meet all the saints. The people that discipled my grandmother I never met. I want to meet them. I want to meet the, the people who, who suffered for their faith that if you trace it back is why you and I are here right now. I want to meet them. I've got questions for, for the apostles, for sure. But I want to meet some of these people. 
And what eternal life is the reunion of the saints, not just the reunion of my loved ones. How glorious is that? And if Christ is risen, and the first act he does is to meet with his disciples, then the resurrection means what we get is to meet with fellow disciples and our Savior. I mean, I, I want that. And with that comes real comfort. Well, finally, this, this, the eternal life leads to, oh, that's a typo. The resurrection does not mean hopelessness. The resurrection means hope. You can see that initially my notes were stated in the negative, and I didn't like the negative, so I turned them to the positive. But this one, I didn't, I didn't hit the backspace. The resurrection means hope. So far, Paul has demonstrated that the resurrection means we have a redeemer, we stand on truth, we have assurance, we have life. And all this means we are people of hope. Not just when we face death, but as we live our lives. The, the temptation for Christians is to turn on the news and to choose hopelessness. The whole world's gone to hell in a handbasket, we say. But in reality, we are always a people of hope. It's not pessimism or optimism, it's hope. We know things are bad. We know eventually things will become better. Justice will rule the day. Hope gets us through each day. And without hope, we, we cannot survive. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that Christ reigns from the eternal throne with all authority and sovereignty. We can't explain everything, understand everything. We know he rules and reigns. And we don't just trust in ourselves. We trust in the conqueror of death. That's the difference. In secularism, there is no defeat of death. And so your only hope is, well, I'm going to fix my problems. I'm going to overcome all the world's problems. I'm going to fix all the world's problems. I bet when you were a teenager, you really actually believed this. And try not to laugh. You actually believed that your generation was going to fix everything. What fools you were. I look back and think about my generation. You know what we thought? We were going to fix all the problems we inherited from you. You know what my kids think? They're going to fix all the problems they inherited from me. Wait till I meet their kids. I'm going to tell them, hey, don't be so foolish to think you're going to fix all the problems your parents left behind. If the world's hope lies on you and me, we are hopeless. But if we turn to he who, 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 who uh, conquered death, we will always, always have hope. And out of this hope, we walk in thanksgiving, joy, and contentment. Because those things are not based off of our circumstances, but based off of he who was raised from the dead. Well, in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, Max Lucado tells a fascinating story. I assume it's a true story. It describes a Brazilian missionary who found a remote tribe, obviously down in Brazil, deep within the jungle. They lived near a river, and um, a contagious disease was ravaging the population. People were dying every day. Now, they lived near this river, and, and, and on the other side of that river was, was a town that had a hospital. And so the distance from their, uh, their sick to the hospital was quite short, particularly considering they were in a remote jungle. All they had to do was to cross the river. That was it. Cross the river, you all will be okay. It's a contagious disease, but, but one that we, we can handle. The problem was the, this remote tribe 
believed that the river was full of evil spirits. And if you were to go into the river, even on a boat, you were going to die. And the missionary was just frustrated. He, 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 was, he was trying to save lives. And he, he just couldn't communicate to them that, yes, the river can be a source of death or a means of death. That doesn't mean that you're always going to die. There aren't evil spirits there. You, you, you can cross the river. So he, he tried a, a number of strategies. He, he himself crossed the river unharmed. I built a boat and went where I cross. He, he even uh, walked everyone over to, to the ledge and he, he put his, his foot in it and he, he, he splashed the water and, and still, still they wouldn't go. And then, then he decided, what well, I'm going to do, I'm going to go into the river up to my waist and then I'm going to uh, go completely under, almost like a baptism. I'm going to go completely under and show them that I, 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 I can make it. Well, it wasn't until he decided to dive into the water, not just walk into it, but to dive and sink all the way to the bottom only to come out of it again. Did the people believe they could cross it? Only then did they believe there was nothing to fear because someone had come on the other side. Someone had conquered the river. So too, if Christ has been risen, so shall we. And because we know we will be raised, we can stand on the anchor. Christ is risen from the dead. If A, then B. And if B, then A. Let's pray.